Kora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Cheryl Buhay about first episode psychosis. Cheryl is an Otago Medical School graduate and a fellow of the Royal Australia and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. She works at Waitemata DHB as a primary care liaison psychiatrist, providing specialist support to GP practices within the West Auckland area. She is involved in general practice teaching and contributes regularly to the Auckland Health Pathways. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, thank you for having me. So first episode, psychosis. We're going to talk about diagnosis, intervention and risk factors and then management. But we're going to start with a case. Daniel is a 21-year-old Maori man who presents with his mother. Mum does most of the talking. She says something's not right with Daniel. He's gone all weird. On further questioning, Mum says that his head is all muddled, he's confused with weird thoughts, and he's just not Daniel. He's either angry and aggressive or spends days in his room and often won't eat. He won't go to uni anymore, and he used to love university. So Cheryl, what's happening with this young man? What more do we need to know from the history both from either Daniel or his mum. We need good history to help clarify the diagnosis of what's going on with Daniel and identify you know, the relevant risk factors to inform of our formulation. So a formulation means, you know, why is Daniel presenting in this way at this time? And it is important to get um, collateral information from Daniel's whanau and supports, um, especially if Daniel doesn't have any insight on, on into his experiences. So what we would like to know is, you know, what are Daniel's current circumstances? Um, what are his, you know, what's his living situation? Who is there to support him? We would like to have a bit more information about his symptoms, um, their duration and their severity. And we can talk about symptoms later on. He is, you know, of a Maori background. So, you know, is there a cultural significance to his symptoms as well? And we can, you know, access you know, advice from cultural support workers or, you know, specialist mental health who've got that knowledge to see if there's a cultural component to his presentation. And when mom says, you know, he's gone all weird, his thoughts are muddled and he's got weird thoughts, you know, we want to know what does that mean? Because it's very subjective. So we need to explore that a bit more. But it sounds like from what mom is uh, reporting that Daniel has also had changes in his mood and his um, and his affect and has been isolating himself from others. So in the early stages, we'll talk about the clinical stages of psychosis later on, but in the you know, early stages or what we call the prodromal phase, the, the changes that people report can be vague and can include change in their affect or their emotions. So there can be anxiety, depression, irritability, anger, and mood swings. Their cognition might change, so they might have um, trouble concentrating or there's, their memory has um, become impaired. Their thought content, um, there might be changes there as well. So, for example, they, there might be some preoccupation with new ideas that are unusual, which is a change from his baseline um, presentation. There's also, you know, physical changes that you can, you know, try and elicit. You know, has there been any sleep disturbance, problems with energy, any physical complaints? What's his functioning like? Um, we know that he's become withdrawn, so we want to know more about that. And also if there's any attenuated psychotic symptoms that don't quite meet 
the threshold for a psychotic episode, but they might, you know, occur intermittently. So it's, there's a lot to explore because these changes may mean, is this a beginning of a, a psychotic illness? And I know that you would have had some sessions or you know, training previously about what the psychotic symptoms are, but I'll go through them here. You know, psychosis is, you know, it's just describes a cluster of symptoms, but it's never the same for between one person to the next. So you may have delusions, which are fixed false beliefs that, you know, even though you give them the evidence to the contrary, they're still fixated with that belief. And there are different types of delusions. You know, there's paranoid delusions, referential delusions, like, you know, the TV sending you messages or people are talking about you. There's jealous delusions, grandiose delusions of having special abilities. You know, there's pl- lots of them. So there's delusions. Secondly, there's hallucinations. So these are perceptual disturbances, like hearing voices when there's no one there. Um, and it's, it's important to note that it's not just voices. It can occur in any modality. So visual hallucinations, olfactory, tactile, you know, smells, tastes, touch, you know, that can occur as well. So the third one is disorganization. So disorganization is um, illogical or doesn't make sense. And this can affect your thoughts or your behavior. So your behavior might not be appropriate for the situation or your thoughts might be all jumbled up. You know, your thoughts are hard to follow. You're giving irrelevant answers. Um, so that might occur. Catatonia. So that's a state where you can have, you know, repetitive or purposeless movements or uh, your body's resistant to passive movement. And when that occurs, you won't forget it when you've seen it. There's also what we call negative symptoms um, of psychosis. And that can include, you know, poverty of speech, you're talking less, uh, flat affect, so less expression in the face, loss of motivation, loss of enjoyment, and loss of social interest. And, you know, we talk about, you know, delusions, hallucinations, disorganization, but there's also the other domain of, you know, the cognition in psychosis. So, you know, attention, memory, our executive functioning can be impaired. So that's your higher level functions of judgment, planning, that can be impaired in psychosis. And then the secondary features, like I mentioned earlier, sleep disturbance, you can have depression and anxiety. So we want to know, is Daniel experiencing any of these, these symptoms? And you know how long for, how severe are they? Because we want to know, not just, you know, is he unwell, but we want to know how unwell is he at the moment. We want to ask about his level of functioning. So, you know, baseline functioning and current level of functioning and collateral from mum is important to elaborate on this. And again, risks plus, plus, plus. So harm to self, harm to other people. And you have to explore it in relation to the experiences that, you know, he's presenting with. Because, you know, like someone is paranoid, can be at risk to others? Are they concealing weapons under their pillow because they're scared? Or are they fixated in certain beliefs that they're approaching people in public and they're vulnerable to to come to harm themselves if people retaliate against them? Commanding voices, you know, they can tell you to hurt yourself, hurt other people. So it's important to explore those. Self-cares, so sleep, oral intake, hygiene, hygiene can drop off. If there's cognitive impairment, they might not be able to drive or cook. 
you know, fire risk. So it's important to just think broadly as well. And if your psychotic symptoms occur with low mood as well, you know, a person can, you know, feel hopeless and suicidal. So just bear that in mind. And even when a psychotic episode is treated, you can have what we call post-psychotic depression, where they think back to how they presented and or what it means to be unwell. And that's also associated with high risk of suicide. So we talked about exploring his symptoms, exploring about risks. You know, we want to know what is the information that we need to formulate this presentation. So any precipitating factors, any stressors. So he's a young person, do a heads assessment. What is the situation at home, at school, um, his peer relationships, um, drug use, sexuality. And it, this is relevant for the young person in particular. Ask about alcohol and substance use, what medications they're on, any physical health issues, and also if there's any family history of mental illness or psychosis. So there is quite a lot to to cover. From Daniel's history and doing a wonderful history, we're wondering about psychosis. So could you just tell us the formal definition of first episode psychosis? So psychosis is an individual's mental state where a in which the person experiences a distortion or a loss of contact with reality without clouding of consciousness. So you that's you know differentiating it from a delirium where you're you've got clouding of consciousness and it's fluctuating. First episode psychosis is when a person meets a full threshold disorder with psychotic symptoms that are moderate to severe um, in nature, and it's associated with you know, moderate to severe functional decline. So by definition, if you have significant psychotic symptoms and in the first, up to the first three to six months after onset. That's what we call first episode psychosis. And we, you know, there's, it's important to note, you know, your differential diagnosis if someone presents with psychotic symptoms, you know, is there an organic cause to his presentation? Is this a primary psychotic illness or is this due to another mental health condition? Because psychosis can occur in the context of a depressive episode or a manic episode? Is this due to a dementia or a personality disorder? So that's important to just work through um, as you're trying to exclude um, other possible causes. Talking about how common psychosis is, Cheryl, I haven't seen a primary episode of psychosis and I've been in practice for a number of years now. So how oh, that's common- good. <laughs> yeah. How common is it? What are the numbers? So, yeah, psychotic sim- symptoms can occur as a part of a continuum of normal experiences. So, there's a median prevalence of about 5% and an incidence of 3% of psychotic symptoms in the general population. And good thing is, you know, up to 90% of these experiences are transient and disappear with time. So, with first episode psychosis, which is a different category, so it's when you meet threshold criteria of a psychotic episode with significant impairment, it usually occurs during adolescence or early adulthood. So around 80% of patients affected by first episode psychosis are between the ages of 16 to 30 years. So this very young, very young group. And some data from Tepo in 2015 noted that the incidence rate of first episode psychosis in is about 46 to 100,000. And interestingly, I found a literature um, from this year, which was a New Zealand cohort study of first episode psychosis in young Maori and 
in non-Maori. So this is this involved about 2,400 young people with about 40% Maori included in the study. They found that the first episode psychosis incident rate in young Maori is more than twice greater than non-Maori. So it's worth noting. So it's 138 per 100,000 in Maori compared to 57 per 100,000 in non-Maori. And those in the Maori, young Maori group were found to be younger. They lived in deprived conditions and in rural communities, and they're more likely to be diagnosed as having schizophrenia. And the diagnosis of schizophrenia is almost twice as likely in Maori. And in contrast, Maori were 50% less likely than non-Maori to be diagnosed as having a bipolar disorder. So that was just interesting to, to note. So you've mentioned a number of risk factors or pockets of the population to be aware of. And in your assessment, you mentioned alcohol and substance use. Marijuana has been quite a hot topic referendum that's just been. I wonder if you can talk about this for a moment as far as a risk factor for psychosis and ongoing schizophrenia. Yes, so there are um, several risk factors um, for psychosis. So if you look at it as, you know, looking at through the biopsychosocial model, so biological, psychological, and social factors, or a stress vulnerability model where a person can have underlying vulnerability and something happens and it triggers a psycho a psychotic episode. So risk factors can predisposing factors can include, you know, your positive family history of psychotic illness, some complications during pregnancy and early early life like trauma, hypoxia, is there a trauma history, you know, abuse or neglect, any physical health conditions like a neurological condition traumatic brain injury. So it's good to see if any of those risk factors do exist. And sometimes there's a triggering event, you know, a stressor that happens that unravels all these symptoms. So stressful life events in particular, it's good to explore that. And also high expressed emotion in the family, you know, can lead to relapses. So that's, and that's, you know, basis for some psychological work down the line. And we talked about, you know, substance use and, you know, especially cannabis use. That's very important to note that cannabis um, during the key stages of brain development, it impacts on the development of white, white matter and synaptic pruning. And THC, tetrahydrocannabindiol, is the main psychoactive component of cannabis. So in terms of cannabis and psychosis, the risk is greater if cannabis use is early and more frequent. And especially if you have other predisposing factors for psychosis, like such as positive family history. And some literature said that your risk of psychosis is actually approximately doubled if you used cannabis during your early adolescence and continued into adulthood. So your risk of psychosis is 10% if you used before the age of 18 years, compared to about 5% if you used after 18 years. And there's also evidence to suggest that cannabis use can bring forward your diagnosis of psychosis by an average of three years. So you're, you can bring about a psychotic episode earlier. So the messages, if you're thinking of experimenting, some people can be fortunate and experiment, but especially in the presence of underlying vulnerability or other prognostic factors, it's the best to stay away from cannabis use. So that's 
one of the key messages. And I think it's relevant, especially yeah, with the referendum recently. It's a good thing to just have in the back of our minds when we're doing our heads assessment and dealing with our yes. young people. Um, yes, and you know, and and we want to know are they using cannabis or other substances? But even exploring further on why they're using it, because for a young person, it could be for um, to improve self-esteem and enjoy the company of their peers. But for others, it might be to self-medicate a depression or anxiety. So it's good to get to the bottom of that motivation of substance use and address that. So earlier on, you mentioned the stages of psychosis. So I wonder if we can talk about these now. So there are four stages of psychosis. Let's start with the pre-morbid stage. Yeah, four stages, but there's also a stage zero. You know, we talked about prodromal phase, acute phase, late phase, but there's also um, literature from Australia that classifies psychosis into stages. So stages, stage zero is your pre-morbid phase where you've got an increased risk of psychosis. So you might have some underlying vulnerability, but you're asymptomatic. And then you've got stage one. That's what we refer to as possible prodromal phase, or another term is at-risk mental state. And this is a term that specialist mental health uses. So it's good to know what at-risk mental state means. And this can be non-specific symptoms with some mild to moderate functional decline. And a subset of that with the more moderate symptoms and functional decline, that's referred to as ultra high risk of psychosis, which is another phrase that's used by specialist mental health as well. Like when they refer to, you might get a GP letter or a discharge summary and they refer to at risk mental state, ultra high risk group, then that's what they're referring to. And you've got stage two, which is your acute and early recovery phase. So that's when they meet that threshold of it is clear that they have a psychotic episode with moderate to severe symptoms and there is moderate to severe functional decline. And this not only includes the acute phase, but like I mentioned at the beginning, it can include up to the first three to six months following the onset of psychosis. Then you've got stage three, which is your late or incomplete recovery phase. And this is around incomplete remission following the first episode, or you can have, you know, relapses. And then stage four is your chronicity, your chronic presentation, where there are severe, persistent, or unremitting symptoms um, as judged by, you know, their symptoms and their level of disability. So those are the main criteria. And it's just good to get your head around that because that helps make sense of you know, referral criteria, some early intervention services, they will accept at-risk mental state, while some will only accept if they meet criteria for a first episode psychosis. And that's, you know, so it's good to know what they're referring to and why they won't see someone when they'll see an, uh, another person with a different presentation. We're going to talk about management in a little while, but it would seem to me that most people would be picked up at around stage two where ideally I would have thought uh, intervening early would have been useful. Yes. So that's, I think, a service delivery issue, funding issue. And I think, I mean, we'll talk about this a bit more, but, you know, getting in there early, diagnosing early, treating early, that's really important. But it still doesn't prevent, you know, GPs and referring. And you can have a, a tailored management plan, even though they might not meet criteria for an early psychosis intervention service, but they might be able to be seen 
within mainstream adult mental health service or the child and adolescent mental health service so they can do the psychoeducation and talk about substance use and provide guidance on when to re-refer if needed. And that shouldn't prevent um, engagement or requesting advice from specialist mental health. Perfect. Thank you for that. So we're going to examine our patient. What are we going to look for particularly? And thinking investigations, is there anything that we should definitely be investigating or ordering in a blood workup? The potential organic causes, the list is huge. So it can range from, you know, substance use to, you know, CJD or, you know, SLE. And it really depends on the person's presentation and the rest of their, you know, findings in their physical health history. But the common causes are substance use and neurological conditions. So trauma involving the frontotemporal lobe and the limbic areas. So what we're aiming for in a physical workup is excluding any organic causes. So that's straightforward because um, then we want to exclude, is this a primary psychotic illness or is this secondary to, to a general medical condition or substance use? Secondly, we want to check their general physical health, which we do for anyone with mental health conditions because they don't look after themselves. Their lifestyle choices might be poor and you know they're at risk of diabetes and heart disease. And also that baseline assessment will help guide us in terms of treatment. If we're going to look at treatment with antipsychotics, which we know have different side effects, metabolic side effects, and you know we can monitor any changes if we start them on treatment and also weigh up which are the better options for medications if we if we need to. So those are are the main aims of doing a thorough physical exam and ordering blood tests and other things. And to note that you know it's not just blood tests, it could the workup can include um, a urine toxicology screen, ECGs if we're looking at a metabolic profile, if someone is um, you know a subset that might have a you know mood disorder as well you know they might have elevated symptoms or low mood we want to make sure they're not pregnant because that can impact on what we prescribe so we want to avoid certain medications if they're of childbearing age we want to check prolactin you know if we're looking at starting risperidone because that we know we can that can raise um, your prolactin levels and for someone with that meet criteria for first episode psychosis we often request neuroimaging, CT head, EEG, just to help exclude epilepsy and other space-occupying lesions or any other intracranial abnormality. So, but whether does primary care arrange all of this, that would be really great. Or, you know, we often um, can arrange those when we see them within specialist mental health as well. Early referral is useful, but what necessitates an urgent referral? So red flags would be if the symptoms are causing significant distress. They're not necessarily suicidal or wanting to hurt anyone, but they're really distressed by their symptoms. They're not sleeping. They're agitated. Carer distress is also one thing that we, you know, we'd like a referral sooner than later if the supports are no longer able to manage this person at home. And it is distressing, you know, for someone who becomes unwell to expect family to 
to carry all that load without support. Obviously, if there's any significant risk issues, um, like I mentioned before, it's not only about suicidal risk or aggression, but even significant deterioration in self-cares and also functional impairment. So, you know, if they're no longer able to work, they're no longer able to, to go to their course. If they have dependents, that's, you know, you know, they're no longer able to look after their children or if they're caring for elderly parents and they, they can't carry out those tasks. So those would be the red flags for a referral. So thinking about management now, how are we going to manage these patients in the community and what tips do you have for us? So management is really tailored to the person. So, you know, we tailor it to the person's age, their cultural background, what phase or stage they're at in their illness. And we want to reduce stigma and trauma especially if they have had no previous contact with specialist services, you want to work alongside the family and also keep them safe, keep everyone safe. So we want to deliver care that's in the least restrictive way. So that might mean remaining in the community with their family with close monitoring. But in in some situations, we do need an admission to hospital for a period of assessment of their significant risks or the, there's significant carer burden. And if there's no insight, the Mental Health Act can be utilized as well to allow us to treat them assertively. But, you know, as much as possible, you know, we work alongside the person and their family. And sure, what interventions have been shown to work? Are there particular models of care that are useful to know about? So in terms of interventions, so we can tailor it according to the stage of the illness. And in terms of models of care, you know, they might be able to remain in primary care or prompt a referral to specialist mental health with recommendations to the GP and also advice on how to re-refer back. And for those who uh, have a significant um, illness, they might be un- remain under specialist mental health follow-up who will oversee, you know, the prescribing, you know, and the follow-up and liaising with the family. But we do often, you know, rely on the GP to work with us to, you know, address any medical issues that come up or, you know, if there's any metabolic issues that need treatment, you know, we link in with primary care in that way as well. So in terms of the evidence-based interventions, if you are in stage zero, if you have no symptoms, but you have that underlying vulnerability. We look at, you know, psychoeducation, improving mental health literacy, educating about the role of substances and it's best to stay away to avoid becoming unwell. And when they get to stage one, which is at-risk mental state or the prodromal phase, we still use those interventions, but we might add some cognitive behavioral therapy in there as well, which um, can help with challenging those delusional beliefs. It can help with stress management, sleep hygiene, and we might look at more assertively addressing any substance use that's happening concurrently. In stage one, you might also consider starting you know, an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer if they have what they call an affective psychosis, where you can have mood elevation or depression. And there's also close monitoring of the mental state. So, you know, at least every two weeks, you can 
see what's happening, you know, if there's been an improvement with those um, interventions in place. And when you get to stage two, which is your first episode psychosis, you still use those strategies as per the earlier stages, but this is where you look at vocational rehabilitation and antipsychotic treatment. So the goals for um, treatment in the acute phase is you treat the positive psychotic symptoms, so your hallucinations, delusions, disorganization, and also any secondary symptoms, so restoring sleep, treating the agitation. You want to look at the negative symptoms as well and working on their functional recovery so that they don't progress further down the stages. At the same time, minimizing the trauma to the person and the family and just giving them hope that we're in this together. And if we get in there early and get the right treatment on board, you know, your prognosis would be improved. And then you have, you know, stage three, which is late or incomplete recovery phase. And that's when you have, you know, relapses or, you know, your first episode hasn't come to full remission. Then you're looking at psychosocial strategies and relapse prevention strategies as the key key components in addition to medications and CBT, say. And then when you get to the chronic phase, stage four, you might be thinking about clozapine at this stage um, for treatment-resistant psychosis and other interventions that help prevent ongoing disability. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit about medications, you know, second-generation antipsychotics. We would like, you know, if they get into the first episode psychosis phase, you know, to observe them medication-free for a couple of days before commencing antipsychotics, just to allow for an assessment and observation, because, you know, it might be that it's a substance-induced psychosis that when they stop using substances, those symptoms will resolve. You know, there's even literature that say that you can even wait at least a week with, you know, a week of frank psychotic symptoms before starting medications. So some people wait, wait a bit longer, but if there is distress, risk, um, or significant disability, then that's when we would start antipsychotic treatment early. You can use benzos as needed for sleep or agitation as well. So that's something in primary care, if they present and there's there's agitation and sleep disturbance, you can give them a course of benzos, benzodiazepines, and then referring to mental health, and they can give the psychoeducation around any other medications they would want to start. And in terms of the doses, you know, young people are antipsychotic naive, you know, they're at risk of developing significant side effects, and you don't want to give them a whacking dose, because then they won't tolerate it, and they'll go, I'm not going to take it. So you know, you start low and go slow um, in terms of antipsychotic medications. And often in this group, then the first episode psychosis group, they respond to lower doses of antipsychotics. And bear in mind the risk of, you know, metabolic side effects, extrapyramidal side effects. So, you know, your akathisia, restlessness, Parkinsonism, just, you know, make a note of those as well, and sexual dysfunction, which would be significant for a young person. My mum has a burning question, which was probably on lots of people's mind. Does Daniel have schizophrenia? What do we tell her? So if you, you know, drop the ball and after a one-off assessment say, I think he has schizophrenia, that can be very distressing and traumatic. Um, and unfortunately, because of the stigma associated with the sort of group of disorders, it's 
that can be a difficult situation to be in. But, you know, diagnosis of, you know, what the end diagnosis is, is not always clear after a one-off assessment because you need a period of observation. You know, you, you want to know what the illness course is before that gets clarified. If I were in the consult, if I were Daniel's GP, I'm in there with mom, I would say Daniel is going through what we call psychosis. Experiences can differ from one person to another. But in Daniel's case, and you can list down, you know, what he presents with, you know, whether it's delusions or voices and try not to use the technical term too, and say that, you know, if we get onto it early and get the help that he needs, then this will improve, you know, improve his recovery and um, trying to deliver that in a, um, just choosing the right terminology, not too much jargon and not using language that or diagnoses that will traumatize them and just giving them that uh, the rationale for what you're going to do, you know, what the plan is and say, look, you know, Daniel's, you know, his functioning is impaired. You know, he, he's not sleeping well. He's been under a lot of stress. So these, you know, medicines can help restore his sleep. And, you know, I'm going to refer to my colleagues in mental health because we might need some medicines that can help with his thoughts, his muddled thoughts and, and bring it back to what they present with and just know that, you know, because you're going to help facilitate that referral to specialist services that you're alongside them and, you know, and you're organizing the help that they need. So thinking about the outcomes of first episode psychosis, Literature says that up, up to 90% of people with first episode psychosis experience uh, full or partial remission within 12 months of treatment, which is good. And about 25% achieve full remission. Unfortunately, they say between 10 and 50% experience treatment resistance. The risk of relapse is also high. So 70 to 80% of people with first episode psychosis experience a relapse within five years. And each relapse increases the risk of persisting symptoms. And that causes, you know, the disruption and the person's functioning and, you know, their trajectory. That's why we want to get in there early um, so we can treat them early, prevent persisting symptoms and further relapses because that can disrupt a person's um in a future trajectory and also place increased burden on their family and their carers. So, so in terms of what are the risk factors of relapse, um, we talked about expressed emotion. So fat, difficult, uh, like family dynamics that can precipitate a relapse, um, stressful life events. So it is important to talk about avoiding significant stress or improving, you know, need to improve a person's resilience to stressors to avoid a relapse. Non-adherence to medications can lead to relapse, which is not surprising. So that's why we psychoeducation is important, um, exploring side effects that can, you know, lead to someone just abandoning their treatment because then, you know, look, you're not stuck with this medicine forever. Or if this medicine doesn't work because it, it, you know, of side effects, we can find something that suits you better. And some people need depot antipsychotics because of non-compliance. So, you know, they can be fortnightly, monthly. Um, and they say other risk factors for relapse include like a poor premorbid functioning 
and also if there's antisocial personality traits. So antisocial means they're hard to work with. They disregard advice and they disengage from follow-up. So, you know, that can be challenging as well. Excellent. Thank you for your insights today. I wonder, just to conclude our podcast, please, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Take-home messages would be, you know, maintain an index of suspicion for an evolving psychotic illness because GPs are the first point of contact for health concerns for this group of people and, you know, your best place to pick up on these subtle symptoms. And just bear in mind the possibility of a psychotic disorder if someone presents with an unexplained functional decline. Like I mentioned earlier, early detection and treatment are key. So psychosis, if prolonged, can disrupt a person's developmental trajectory. So in a young person, you know, their socializing, their relationships, their education and vocation. And if you delay treatment, that can affect treatment responsiveness of these symptoms. So the recovery rate can be slower, um, the recovery rate is poorer, and the relapse rate is increased, and their functioning is not optimized. So it's best to get in there early, maintain that therapeutic alliance with the person and the family, because like I said, you know, it, it is a traumatic, uh, can be traumatic for families, and there's the stigma, negative stigma associated with the diagnosis of psychosis, and also um, access specialist treatment specialist mental health services for advice on early intervention because you want a comprehensive plan and sustained intervention during this critical period, which is the five first five years after first episode of psychosis is diagnosed. So I guess if you know for those listening, referral criteria to early intervention service differs and that is dependent on resources and funding. But even if you can't get into early intervention services, there's other mental health services, even in the mainstream service, who can review and provide recommendations so that you can have a tailored plan moving forward. Thank you, Cheryl, for your insights and wisdom today. It's been wonderful talking to you. Cheryl's put together a wonderful PDF document, which is also on our website that I'd like you to have a look at. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure and thank you to our listeners for listening.